أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد One of the important events that Muslim historians have examined in the history of the Prophet in Mecca was the Islam of Umar ibn al-Khattab and they've placed a great emphasis on him becoming Muslim. So this is how the narrative goes. You will find this in the books of historians from other schools of thought. Basically, they state that three days after Hamza, the uncle of the Prophet became Muslim, in the sixth year of the Hijrah, now this is, uh, I'm sorry, in the sixth year of the Ba'tha, so this is six years after the Prophet receives revelation. Umar ibn al-Khattab, when he hears that Hamza has become Muslim and the Muslims are gaining power, he gets agitated, infuriated. He comes out with his sword, carrying his sword, and he comes with the intention of killing the Prophet and the companions of the Prophet. Now these hadiths claim that the companions of the Prophet were 40 in number in the house of Arqam by the hill of Safa. If you remember, we talked about the house of Arqam. It was the headquarters of the Muslims for some time. On his way, he meets a man by the name of Nu'aym or Na'im ibn Abdullah. Na'im ibn Abdullah. Na'im asks him, what are you up to? Because he sees him aggravated and he's got a sword in his hand. He tells him, I've come to finish this Muhammad, to kill the Prophet. He advises against that. He tells him, look, I don't recommend you do this. His family could seek revenge from you. And let me break it to you. Your own sister and her husband, meaning your brother-in-law, have become Muslim. Umar ibn al-Khattab had a sister by the name of Fatima bint al-Khattab. She had become Muslim and her husband had also become Muslim. Umar is now even more infuriated. My own sister has become Muslim because she used to hide that from him. So he goes to their house. Khabbab ibn al-Urat, one of those great companions who was tortured, we talked about him briefly before. He was teaching Fatima, the sister of Umar, and her husband, Surah Taha. He was teaching them how to read the Quran and how to understand the Quran. When Umar breaks into the house, he goes into the house. Fatima and her husband realize Umar is coming, they get scared, they go hiding. Then Umar comes in and he realizes that they're hiding and there's a confrontation. Umar tells, ask his sister, what, 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 what is this all about? Have you really become Muslim? You're following this Muhammad? She says, look, I'll confess, I have nothing to hide anymore. Yes, I have become Muslim, I am a Muslim. He gets so angry, he takes his sword, with a part of his sword, he strikes her head, he wounds her head, such that blood starts to flow, and also he assaults his brother-in-law, meaning her husband. Then when he sees the blood flowing from her, he feels regretful. So he tells her, Okay, what is this that you're reading? Let me look at it. Which was verses from Surah Taha. 
She's like, okay, here, read it. He reads those verses and he is now interested in the Holy Qur'an. He finds a lot of interest. He's like, you know what, let me go meet this guy and see what's this religion about. So he goes and he meets the Prophet in a long story and he joins the religion of Islam. Now these historians claim that the Prophet becomes so happy, he does takbir, Allahu Akbar, and all the Muslims say Allahu Akbar, such that the pagans hear this takbir and they realize something is going on. Then the Prophet, to honor Umar, he gives him the title of what? Farooq. You are the Farooq, you decipher between right and falsehood. Ibn Umar narrates, the son of Umar, he narrates that before Umar ibn al-Khattab became a Muslim, the Prophet had made a dua. He said, Oh Allah, strengthen Islam by either Umar ibn al-Khattab or Abu Jahl. Meaning the Prophet made a dua to Allah to make one of them Muslims and Ibn Umar claims that Allah answered the dua of the Prophet and Umar ibn al-Khattab was chosen by God to become Muslim. Well, of course not Abu Jahl but Umar ibn al-Khattab. The other one was also Umar, Abu Jahl was, his name was Umar. Yes, yes, Abu Jahl is his kunya. Uh, he, he has another name, I forgot his name. I heard with both that both of them, their name was Umar, possibly. His, his name may have been Umar. He has another name, I forgot. Abu Hakam, yes. Well, that's also a kunya, but his first name, probably yes. His, uh, his name was Abu al-Hakam by the way, Abu Jahl. Muslims called him Abu Jahl, the father of ignorance, because Jahl means ignorance. He was so ignorant and such a staunch enemy of Islam, Muslims actually gave him that name. But you're right, his title was Abu al-Hakam and uh, his name was Umar. So he becomes a Muslim and supposedly Islam is now strengthened. Quraysh is now freaking out that he became a Muslim and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strengthens the religion of Islam. So this is the story that is told, commonly told by other schools of thought and historians. We have a few observations here. Our point is not to discredit anyone, but to be fair to history and to really know who strengthened Islam, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave victory to the religion of Islam. First of all, they give you this image that when Umar came to confront the Prophet, he came so courageously and bravely carrying a sword and he just wants to go and kill. The reason why this is doubtful is if you look at the biography of Umar, especially his conduct after Islam in battles, we never see such bravery. No, I'm being honest, it's not to belittle anyone or to discredit anyone. At the battle of Uhud, at the battle of Badr, at the battle of Khaybar, in any of those battles, we don't see him carrying a sword and going out into the battlefield. Never to be seen, even in, in other schools of thought. So for him to be so courageous like that and to come and wanting to kill, that is doubtful. Because we don't see that. Yes, we see his courage with prisoners of war. When the, when the Muslims would gain victory in the battles, and there would be prisoners of war, he would come to the Prophet, you know, wanting to strike his sword and telling the Prophet, let's kill them. That's the only bravery honestly we see from him. After the war ended, 
after fleeing the battles, then we, when you've got poor prisoners of war, now he wants to act brave and kill them. But in the battles itself, we don't see that bravery. So that in itself is a question mark, whether these are fictitious accounts to make him seem important or they're real accounts. In fact, you know, they narrate, you know, in these hadiths of him becoming a Muslim, that when he goes to Masjid al-Haram and they confront him, for example, Utbah ibn Rabi'ah. Utbah ibn Rabi'ah was a warrior. Umar is so brave, he confronts him, he knocks him to the ground, and he inserts his two fingers into his, into his eyes. This is very doubtful. That's not conduct that we see from him. You know, uh, Utbah was killed at which battle? Badr, right? At Badr. Shayba and Utbah, and that was a big blow to the Mushrikeen. So this same guy, Utbah, is killed at the battle of Badr. Well, at the battle of Badr, do we see him killing a single person? If he was so brave that without a sword he can stick his two fingers in the eyes of Utbah, why didn't he kill him in the battle of Badr? Why was this task to Amir al-Mu'mineen Imam Ali to kill Utbah with one of the leaders of the pagans? So honestly this raises a lot of questions about the authenticity of these claims. And you know for them to claim that Allah strengthened the religion of Islam when you had Abu Talib, that warrior who strengthened the religion of Islam by defending the Prophet. You had Hamza, yes Allah did strengthen Islam with Hamza. You know Umar ibn al-Khattab, he comes from the tribe of Adi. They were not known to be very high ranking in Mecca such that Quraysh would actually fear them. There were some tribes Quraysh would fear, yes don't mess with that tribe. But this tribe honestly was not one of those tribes. It was just an average, in, in fact it was a low ranking tribe in Mecca. So for them to give you this you know, picture that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave a huge victory to Islam and He strengthened and solidified Islam, that is all very doubtful. Another observation is, how did Allah strengthen Islam? Through Him. Do you know what happened after Umar became Muslim? What were the sequence of events? We'll examine that in the near future. In fact, things got worse for Muslims. You had the boycott of the Sha'ib of Abi Talib. Up until the sixth year of the Ba'tha, it was kind of bearable for the Muslims. After the year six, it became unbearable, a complete blockade on them. So when they say Allah strengthened Islam, what do they mean? If it means that Quraysh now started to become nicer to the Muslims, in fact they didn't become nicer to the Muslims. Muslims had more freedom to practice and worship, it was the exact opposite. So it's not clear what they mean that God strengthened Islam with him. Nothing significant happened. In fact, if anything happened, it was the exact opposite. Things became tougher on Muslims. So I don't see how Islam somehow became stronger. In fact, we even have hadiths in Bukhari and others that tell us about the personality of Umar. You know, whether he was that brave or not. For example, they said that Dawa was made. No, remember we examined before that the first three years were private. At the end of the three years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet in a verse in the Holy Quran, Fasda' bima tu'mar, go public. So this was years before it. And that's why you had the hijrah to the Habasha because uh, remember the fifth year we had the hijrah to the Habasha? 
The reason why we had the migration to Abyssinia is because they had already gone public. So no, it wasn't after him that you know, Islam went public. It was before that, yes. That's a different discussion. We're talking about, you know, basically his conduct. So in Sahih al-Bukhari, we see there's a hadith about the Islam of Umar. And Abdullah ibn Umar, he narrates this hadith. He says, Umar was in his house scared. That's the exact translation. بَيْنَمَا Umar الدَّارِ خَائِفًا He was scared in his house. When Al-As ibn Wa'il, comes to him and he tells him, what's the matter with you? He tells him that I'm afraid because I became Muslim, but people will kill me. Al-As ibn Wa'il tells him, no, don't worry. I will give you refuge, I'll give you protection, and no one can hurt you. Then it is after that, that Umar feels safe and you know, Al-As ibn Wa'il protects him from people who wanted to harm him. So when you have a hadith like that in Bukhari, is this compatible with him being so, you know, courageous, going out there by himself, wanting to kill and whatever they've attributed to him? Or it kind of cast doubt where he was actually hiding in his house and Al-As ibn Wa'il had to guarantee him protection for him to feel safe and come out. This isn't Sahih al-Bukhari, not in Kafi or Bihar al-Anwar. This isn't Sahih al-Bukhari. So we see contradictions over here. We see contradictions in these claims. Another observation over here about his conduct is that in the event of Hudaybiyah, it was a peace treaty that the Prophet made with the pagans in the sixth year of Hijrah in Medina. When the Prophet was in Medina, in a place called Hudaybiyah, he made that peace treaty. Initially, the Prophet told Umar, you go to the Meccans of Quraysh and tell them, let's negotiate. Umar refuses. He says, O Messenger of God, I'm scared they'll kill me. Send someone else. So where's that bravery? The Prophet is sending you. It's by the order of God, even if you get killed on the way, you die as a shaheed because you're, you're implementing the command of the Prophet. But we see that he backs out over there. The Prophet commands him to go to Mecca and to negotiate. He was scared to enter Mecca. So that is also another clue about how his conduct and personality was. Yes. No, no, this was at Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, sixth year of Hijrah, when the Prophet wanted to do Hajj, the Meccans blocked him from doing the Hajj, so they made a peace treaty. So the Prophet initially wanted to send him, but no. Another claim they've made is that when Umar ibn al-Khattab became Muslim, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in the Holy Quran, in, in his honor, stating, Ya ayyuhan nabiyyu hasbukallah wa man ittaba'aka min al-mu'mineen. O Prophet, it is enough that you have Allah and whoever is following you now. Now you've been strengthened, that's enough for you. When was this verse revealed supposedly? When he became Muslim. So Allah is saying, that's it. You're good, you're good to go, you've got enough companions and you're strong right now. You have Allah and your companions. So why this is doubtful 
is because this verse was actually revealed not in Mecca. It was revealed in Medina after the battle of Badr. Whereas Umar became Muslim in Mecca, so this first of all does not match. And Surah Al-Anfal, because this is Surah in Surah Al-Anfal, Surah Al-Anfal basically is a Madani Surah, not a Mecca Surah. So for them to use this verse stating that it was revealed for his Islam, that in itself is doubtful because this verse was revealed in Medina, not in Mecca. And in addition to that, the previous verses talk about war and, and you know, battles and in Mecca there were no wars and battles. This was in Medina, another indication that this has nothing to do with his Islam. Yes. It's possible for them that to say that this surah generally is a Madani surah, but there are some Mecca verses. But we specifically cite hadiths that state this verse in question came after the battle of Badr. So we have two arguments here. One, the surah itself is Madani, that's one clue. And also specifically this, the verse was Madani. So with that, it's, there's no, no room for them to claim that this was revealed in honor of him. As for the title Farooq, have you heard the title Farooq? Yeah. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. Farooq. They call him the Farooq. Supposedly the Prophet after he became Muslim, he told him, you're the Farooq, the one who deciphers between good and bad. Like you're that line that separates good and evil. From Farq, which means uh, the divide, a line. It's so sad, brothers and sisters, when you look at history, every title, the Prophet gave to Imam Ali was appropriated to someone else. This is actually one of the titles of Amir al-Mu'mineen The Prophet in authentic hadiths, he calls Ali ibn Abi Talib as-siddiq al-akbar wal-faruq al-a'zam or al-akbar. He is the great siddiq, the one who excessively believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. While we know to whom they gave the title siddiq, and also the title Farooq is a title of Amir al-Mu'mineen which they gave to others. And that's really tragic how they take the virtues of Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them. You know Tabari in the Kha'ir al-Uqba by the way, he mentions a hadith from Abu Dhar. This is a Sunni scholar, Tabari is a Sunni scholar. He is narrating a hadith from Abu Dhar. He says, I heard the Messenger of God. Say to Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi salam, Anta al-Siddiq al-Akbar, wa anta al-Faruq al-Ladhi yafruq bayna al-Haqq wal-Batil, or yufarruq bayna al-Haqq wal-Batil. Abu Dhar says, I heard the Messenger of God look at Amir al-Mu'mineen. He told him, you are the great Siddiq and the divide between Haqq and Batil. So this is a title uh, from uh, that was given to Imam Ali السلام, they gave it to other companions. Yes. And by the way, the first to call Umar Farooq were the people of the book in his Khilafah. So at the time of the Prophet, we see no reference to him being called the Farooq. This was by the people of the book, they called him the Farooq. So this was not a title given to him, um, you know, by the Prophet There are a number of other observations over here. Now, they also mention 
that when Umar became Muslim, he came next to the Prophet The Prophet was praying and he was reading the Holy Qur'an and then he read this verse, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَتْلُوا مِنْ قَبْلِهِ مِنْ كِتَابٍ وَلَا تَخُطُّهُ بِيَمِينِكِ The Prophet was reciting this verse that you would not recite before the Qur'an any other book nor would you write anything before the religion of Islam and then you know they mentioned that he became Muslim after that. Now because this verse talks about the Prophet not reading and writing, let us briefly discuss this very fundamental point. Was the Prophet illiterate or not? You've commonly heard that the Prophet is what? Illiterate. And other schools of thought, not all of them, let's be fair to them, not all Sunnis, there are some Sunni scholars who don't believe in that, but the majority of Sunni scholars believe that the Messenger of God was illiterate. And he is Ummi, yes, that's what they say. So the Shia are pretty unanimous that the Prophet, of course, he never practiced reading or writing. That's not something we're contesting over here. But did he know how to read and write? Was he illiterate in that sense? That if you were to show him something, he couldn't make sense of it. Or if he really wanted to write something, he couldn't. Is that the case or no? There are a number of arguments made. One of them is this verse in question. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly states that before the Qur'an, you did not read any book, neither did you write anything with your right arm. That's one argument they used, they've used. Another argument is Ummi. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the Prophet as being Ummi. And supposedly that means unlettered or illiterate. So how do we respond to that? First of all, the word Ummi in Arabic has a number of meanings. One meaning is the one who is attributed to Umm al-Qura. One of the names of Mecca is what? Umm al-Qura, the mother of villages, because it was central in Arabia. So one of the names of Mecca was Umm al-Qura. If you came from Mecca, you were born in Mecca, Mecca was your hometown, people would call you what? Ummi, right? Like Arabi, Irani, Iraqi, you have that ya in Arabic, Ummi, means you come from where? Umm al-Qura. So Imam al-Sadiq in one hadith, he says that's the meaning of Ummi. When Allah says that He sent a prophet who's Ummi, Allah is not saying He sent a prophet who's unlettered. Yes, one of the meanings of Ummi can be illiterate, but Allah is not using that meaning over here. He's using the meaning that this messenger comes from what? From Umm al-Qura. So that is one of the uh, meanings of Ummi. There are some other meanings of Ummi also, which means that the Prophet came from a village or a country that did not receive a divine book. So we can consider the Meccans to be Ummi in the sense that they did not have a divine book like the Jews and Christians had. So Allah is saying, I'm sending a book to a prophet who comes from a place that does not have a divine book. That's another meaning of Ummi. So this is another meaning that we have. What about that verse which says, you O messenger, 
You never read any book before and never did you write anything with your right hand. Does this indicate the Prophet was illiterate? There's no indication in the verse that he did not know how to read and write. The verse is only negating what? The fact that he practiced reading and writing. That's why. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the people, look at the mu'jizah of the Qur'an, the miracle. This is a man who never learned anything from anyone, he never read a book, he never wrote. So don't accuse him of writing because he never actually wrote. But it's not negating the fact that he does not know how to read and write. No, the Prophet could distinguish the words. I mean, he has the, all of the knowledge, of course. And he could write if he wanted, but he did not write deliberately so they don't accuse him of writing the Qur'an and authoring the Qur'an. So there is no proof in the Qur'an that the Prophet was illiterate or unlettered. The word itself shows did not and could not are two different things. So Allah could have said Yeah, Allah is not saying he could not. He just says he didn't. You did not read nor did you write. That's all. It does not say you cannot read or cannot write. Yes. So he was guided by Allah from birth not to write, not to practice writing and reading so no one accuses him. And that could be a proof that prophets from the day they are born, they're guided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that they have a level of prophethood. Yes, that's a good argument over there. So we believe that the Prophet could actually read and write. In fact, in Hudaybiyah, you know, when they were making that treaty, the Prophet looked at that treaty he, he read what the contents of that treaty and you know they objected to the title Messenger of God. We'll examine that in the future. And you know the Prophet had that omitted and he just said, okay, Muhammad, uh, not the Messenger of God because the pagans objected to that. Yes. So the letters that the Prophet wrote Basically, what is understood historically is that he had someone write it for them. So it was on his behalf. But some do believe that the Prophet, after Islam and after Allah proved to the world that this was a miracle, he did write. Um, some believe that in fact the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, he did write it. Or when he was on his deathbed three days before he passed away and he said, bring me a piece of paper and pen so I'll write for you a will such that you'll never go, you'll never go astray. Many take it to mean, I'll dictate to you, but some of them said, no, he wanted to write it with his own right handwriting. So there's a you know, disagreement among scholars whether he actually wrote or not. Before Ba'tha, he definitely didn't. After Ba'tha, there's disagreement. Some say he did, some say he didn't. Now here's an interesting question. If the Prophet could write, and he would have written for us all those hadiths, wouldn't that have been so much better for us? We have hadiths authored by the Prophet himself. No disagreements, look at the chain, don't look at the chain, who fabricated, who didn't. We have a book from the Prophet and he gave it to humanity and, 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 and this, end this whole dispute. Why didn't Allah allow the Prophet or any of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt to write books of hadith for us? Now the Prophet, let's say, okay, there was a concern, let's not accuse him of writing the Qur'an. What about the Imams? Why don't we have books authored by 
the Imams who knew how to write, obviously. Why didn't Al-Imam al-Sadiq who taught 4,000 students at once in that Islamic university, why didn't he write a book for us? And he would have saved us so much trouble to figure out which hadith is correct and which is not. There are a number of reasons, aside from Allah wanting to test us of course. Number one, you think if the Imam would have written a book for us, there would not have been fabrications? Oh, believe that so many people in history would have, you know, gotten a hold of that book and inserted hadiths in it and that's it. This is the book of Imam al-Sadiq, now we'll take it for granted and God knows how many fabricated hadiths would have been inserted. Number two, remember the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, because they represented the truth, oftentimes they were in taqiyya, meaning they did not publicly declare everything to everyone. If you have a book and it contains everything, oh, imagine what the government is going to do. Ah, you Shias, you have these beliefs, we're going to massacre all of you. But when it's verbal, it's difficult to keep track of it. And remember, back then there weren't any recorders, right? <laughs> to go and prove that the Shia or the Imam said any of this. So this would have come with a number of consequences for the Shia. They, they would have been eradicated had the governments gotten a hold of that copy. Number three, the Imams of Ahlul Bayt want us to use our intellect to arrive at the truth. If the Imam has all the laws for us in a book, who would become a scholar? Why should I go and become a scholar when I have all the laws over here given to me? But once you don't have a book, this compelled Shia scholars in history to go and become scholars and the Imam wanted in the era of occultation to have our scholars as pillars. To get them to be scholars, they did not leave a book behind. So you have to go and do research to find out what the Imam said. It's not given to you on a golden platter. Otherwise, you'd have no marji', no scholar, nothing. We'll just be parrots who just read laws not even understanding them. Because hey, why should I go and investigate when the hadith here and the Imam is mentioning the law itself in the book. But once you do research, you start developing depth in religion. Because that's what research does. Yes. By the way, we are told that the Prophet never did taqiyya, right? He never did taqiyya, it was only the Imams. Is that a true statement? In fact, not just the first three years, most of the time in Mecca. Yes, when it came to Tawheed, idol worshipping, there was no taqiyya. But when it came to the details of the religion of Islam, the Prophet didn't go public with everything. You think he'd stand in Masjid al-Haram, oh Quraysh, A to Z, let me give you to your Islam. Of course not. The Prophet did practice taqiyya. He would say certain things only to his close companions. If there was a stranger, he wouldn't say everything. Yes, Tawheed, he'd say that publicly, no doubt about that. But for the other details of the religion of Islam, when the Prophet was in Mecca, he did not have freedom, he did taqiyya. Yes, when he went to Medina and he had more freedom, then yes. So the Prophet did implement taqiyya. So why didn't the Prophet write a book? Number of reasons, one, 
so they won't accuse him of writing the Qur'an, which is probably the most important reason. Second, there would have been fabrications in it. The minute the Saqifah happened, be sure they would have taken that book and God knows what they would have done to it. So it was not in the interest of the believers and Islam throughout history to have a book like that. So this is one misconception about the Prophet being illiterate. Another misconception that we find today in the media about the Prophet is that unlike Jesus, the Prophet was violent because he went to war. Whereas Jesus was a type of Prophet who, you know, if you slap this cheek, I'll give you the other cheek. He never went to war with anyone, he was the symbol of peace and they always make that comparison. Haven't you seen that, you know, the, the Prophet of Islam was violent, he went to war, but the Prophet of Christianity or the Lord of Christianity is a merciful, loving one who did not go to war. Is that true? The claim that Jesus السلام, never took up arms, is that a true statement? No, it does not. First of all, there's nothing in the Bible that confirms that. Yes, we believe Prophet Isa did invite to love and compassion and mercy, but in fact, there are historical clues that Jesus السلام, he did try to mobilize his companions to fight. He did, but he didn't have enough supporters. And in fact, the whole story of the crucifixion demonstrates that he called on his companions to fight. How? The Romans, what was their punishment for sedition? The one who rises against the government, armed, or calls on people, mobilizes people to rise against the rulers of the region. Their punishment was crucifixion. They wouldn't crucify you just for anything. Sedition, the punishment for it was crucifixion. Now if you were just a man walking so humble and you're preaching something new, you think the Romans cared? They didn't care. Okay fine, let him invent his own religion, big deal, that's not my concern. The Romans had installed their own rulers in Jerusalem. You know, they acted on behalf of the Romans. Prophet Isa told his companions that these people are thieves, these people are corrupt and we have to take action. In fact, he did call on his people to fight his companions, but he didn't have enough companions to topple them. But he did. And number two, really, Prophet Isa he was facing who? If he wanted to fight, who is he going to fight? The Roman Empire. Well, obviously that's not a wise thing to do. When you have a few companions and they have a huge civilization and state, Obviously you're not going to go and drag yourself to death by doing so. So it was not wise for him to fight anyone. Whereas the Prophet he was not dealing with the Roman Empire in the beginning. They were some tribal you know, uh, people in Mecca who wanted to uproot Islam. The Prophet defended himself. So we see that this is a big misconception when they compare them, they do injustice to the Prophet. The circumstances of Prophet Muhammad later on in his life were different than Jesus. Yes, you want to compare Prophet Muhammad and Jesus and be fair to the analogy, compare Prophet Jesus to Prophet Muhammad in Mecca. The 13 years in Mecca, did the Prophet go to war? Did he seek revenge from anyone? Did he torment anyone? Did he punish anyone? No, it was all forgiveness. Muslim would be tortured, he would be tortured, he would be harassed. 
He never sought revenge. How come they don't make that comparison? Yes, in Medina now the Prophet was a leader and it was expected of him to defend his society. Prophet Isa never had a region that he was ruling or representing for him to defend it. He would go from village to another village preaching. So you have differences over here. Be sure that Prophet Isa if he established a community somewhere in Palestine and now he was guarding that community, oh if there were people who came to attack, he would have gone to war for sure, no doubt about that. Yes. Exactly. What indicates the mercy of the Prophet is that in the eighth year of the Hijrah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him victory, he entered Mecca triumphantly. All those Meccans, the pagans had blood on their hands. 20 years of persecution, killing, murdering. Now the Prophet had the opportunity to obliterate them, obliterate them. What did he do? He forgave all of them. He did not punish a single one of them. Show me one leader in history who was persecuted along with his community for 20 years, the day he gets victory over his own staunch enemies, he forgives them all. That's the rahmah of the Prophet Yes. Sayyid, you mentioned that the verses of uh, Nabi Isa are not in the Bible. No, what I meant that in the Bible, we don't have any verses that state Isa السلام, never took up a sword and he never tried to fight. There is no such claim in the Bible. So the Bible does not negate the fact that he did. Even the Bible does not negate that. It's, it doesn't talk about that, but it does not negate that. But in fact, there are indications in which the Prophet Isa السلام, sometimes would mobilize people to take up arms. There are indications in the Bible, we can discuss the verses. In fact, we do have uh, commands from Prophet Jesus telling the youth to take up arms. Now they interpret it differently, but in any case, uh, this is one misconception that many Westerners have regarding the Prophet Now one final point that we'll discuss before next week we examine the most difficult time in the history of Islam which was the Sha'b of Abi Talib when there was a full blockade and boycott. Before that, one significant event did happen, which we'll briefly address. So, remember we talked about the Mi'raj and the Isra, the ascension to the heavens, that was, you know, probably third or fourth year after the Hijrah. Well, in the fifth year of the Hijrah, a very significant event that happened in Mecca, was the birth of Lady Fatima Salamullahi Alayha. She was born in the fifth year of the Hijrah. Now, what's that? Ba'tha, I'm sorry, yes. The fifth year after Ba'tha. So we're talking five years after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi received revelation. Now Lady Fatima Alayhi Salam was blessed to be born in the most pure household in history. Her father is the messenger of God. Her mother was who? Lady Khadija That amazing pure woman who defended the religion of Islam through her sacrifices and through her amazing care for the messenger of God. You know to what point Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cared about Khadija because of her care to the Prophet? We have a hadith that states once 
the Messenger of God in Mecca. He went to preach in Masjid al-Haram. He stood at the hilltop of Safa. You know, you do the Sa'i between Safa and Marwa. He stood at the Safa and he was preaching to the Meccans. They started chasing him with stones. So the Prophet left the city. He went to a nearby mountain to take some rest. Khadija was waiting for the Prophet to come back home. He didn't. So she, along with Imam Ali they got worried. Where is the Prophet? So she comes out of her house. He go, she goes into the valleys of Mecca searching for the Prophet. She's running from one valley to another valley crying. Crying, shedding tears because the Prophet is missing. She was concerned that something happened to him, that something not happened to him. At that point, Jibra'il comes to the Prophet. The Prophet was bleeding at this point because they had stoned him with some rocks. He was bleeding. So imagine the Prophet is in a difficult state himself. He needs someone to take care of him. Jibra'il comes to the Prophet. He tells him, Ya Rasulallah, Khadija's crying and she made all the angels of the sky cry. Go and find Khadija and comfort her. Do you see the greatness of Khadija The Prophet who is the greatest of God's creation, he himself is in that state. Jibra'il tells him, go and comfort Khadija. She's looking for you and she's crying. This is the Avama of Lady Khadija This is the greatness of this woman which history has neglected and Muslims throughout history have not done justice to this lady. In fact, we have authentic hadiths that when the Prophet came down from the Mi'raj, right before he came down, he asked Jibra'il, Jibra'il, you know, you've served me, you've been with me, you took me on this journey, can I do anything for you? The Prophet asks who? Jibra'il, can I do anything for you? Sunni hadiths have narrated this. Jibra'il said, yes, I have one request from you. When you go back down to the earth, convey my salam to Khadija. This is the greatness of Lady Khadija salam. In fact, Bukhari narrates that once Lady Khadija salam, she was carrying a, a tray of food, carrying a tray for the Prophet when Jibra'il had come bringing revelation to the Prophet. Jibra'il told the Prophet, you know, pointing towards Khadija, give her my salam on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is where? In Bukhari. So Lady Khadija is the mother of Fatima and she's this amazing great woman who truly sacrificed. Now before Lady Fatima, she had a number of children from the Prophet uh, She had a couple of sons. Uh, Al-Qasim was the first son. That's why the title of the Prophet was Abu Al-Qasim. Have you heard? You know, people referring to him as Abu Al-Qasim. That's the reason because he had a son by the name of Qasim. She gave birth to him, but he was young when he died. Al-Qasim died. That was the first child of Lady Khadija and the Prophet. Um, the Prophet enters into the room of Khadija and he sees her crying and weeping. And he tells her, why are you crying you know, so much? She tells him, you know, I'm crying because our son died and you know, we still don't have children. So at that point, the Messenger of God told her, Oh Khadija, let me tell you something that will make you happy. At the gate of paradise, your child is waiting for you. And it will state, I will not enter paradise until my mother joins me. And by the way, we have hadiths that this applies to all those who lose children or miscarry. 
the hadith from the Prophet He says any woman who miscarries or she has a you know, fully born child who dies later, that miscarriage, that child will be standing at the gates of paradise. Allah subh- and, and frowning, meaning in sadness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will address that fetus and tell the fetus, why don't you enter? You're innocent and I've made Jannah available for you. The fetus will state, I shall not enter unless my parents join me. And because of the innocent fetus, Allah forgives the parents and allows them to uh, join. So losing a child is a great loss. It's a loss you can't quantify, you can't describe. But just remember the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how He compensates those who do miscarry or lose children. So when the Prophet says that to Khadija, that gives her a lot of comfort. And then they had another son by the name of At-Tahir, he also dies. They have a number of girls, um, for example Zainab, Ruqayya, Umm Kulthum, these are the daughters that uh, Lady Khadija and the Prophet had. The last of the children of Khadija was Lady Fatima in the fifth year of the Ba'tha, five years after the Prophet received revelation. And we have historians telling us that, for example, we have hadiths attributed to Aisha. Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi is a Sunni historian and scholar. He actually narrates this hadith from who? From Aisha. He says, Aisha said once, I examined the Prophet. He would embrace Fatima alayhi salam so much he would hug her and kiss her and he would frequently do this. So once I asked him, why do you keep on doing this? Isn't it too much? Aisha is objecting to the Prophet. The Prophet tells her, oh Aisha, let me tell you something. When I went to the Mi'raj, ascended to the heavens, in a long story, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me a heavenly fruit to eat. I took from that fruit and because I ate that heavenly fruit, I carried the seed of Fatima. I came down to earth that same night, I approached Khadija and that same night Fatima was conceived. So the origin of Lady Fatima is from paradise. Whenever I would miss the fragrant smell of paradise, I embrace my daughter Fatima and smell her because she has the smell of paradise. That's why I keep embracing her, to remember paradise. Who narrates this hadith? Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi. On the authority of who? Aisha. We, in our sources, we have many of these hadiths of course, but these are some hadiths and their sources. So in the fifth year, in the fifth year of the Ba'tha, Lady Khadija is pregnant and she's about to give birth to Lady Fatima Now the woman of Quraysh, remember Khadija was the wealthiest woman. So all those elite women of Quraysh would hang in, around in her house, she would have women gatherings in her house. She had a fancy house by the way, uh, you know, compared to the standards of, of that time. She was the wealthiest woman so it was natural that she would have, you know, an upscale house. When she marries the Prophet many women abandon her. They tell her, you went after a person who was an orphan and 
he's not rich. They looked at the marriage of Lady Khadija to the Prophet materialistically and so they shunned her. He told her, you didn't do the, you didn't, you know, do the right decision. Why did you marry a man so poor and humble like him? So they start abandoning her. When Lady Khadija السلام, is now pregnant and she's about to give birth to Lady Fatima السلام, the hadith from Imam al-Sadiq which is in the book Bihar al-Anwar, the Imam السلام, states that all of the women of Quraysh boycotted Khadija. This is a fundamental point over here. You know when they, when other schools of thought make a comparison between Khadija and other women, other wives of the Prophet. My question is, those other wives who came in Medina, what did they sacrifice for Allah and Islam? Name me one thing. What did they sacrifice? Those wives who joined the Prophet in Medina, you know what happened? All that happened is they gained prestige because now they became the women of the Prophet. He was taking care of them, people had respect for them. What did they sacrifice? Who is the one who lost her socio-economic status because she joined the Prophet? That's Khadija Can you compare between the two? Khadija lost all that wealth, all that socio-economic status in Mecca because the Meccans hated Khadija. They told her, you're the reason why he became successful. It's your wealth that saved him and his religion and his followers and you bailed out those Muslims, and you freed slaves. They boycotted Khadija. They considered the success of Islam a result of her sacrifice. So she lost her friends, she lost everyone in Mecca, she had no one. She became a gharib, a lonely person. You compare her to the one in Medina when she married the Prophet, and she gained all that prestige, and she sacrificed nothing, and she caused all those headaches to the Prophet. This is shameful for us to make a comparison like that. So Lady Khadija السلام, loses that social status in Mecca. The Quraysh were very agitated. You know, why did you become the first Muslim? Why did you support the Prophet? Why are you spending from your money? Al-Imam al-Sadiq السلام, in this hadith he states when she was pregnant with Lady Fatima, everyone abandoned her. She would be alone in her house suffering from loneliness. The hadith states, once the Prophet entered the house and he heard Khadija talking to someone. The Prophet tells her, Khadija, who are you talking to? Initially she kind of felt embarrassed to say, but he asked her, who are you talking to? She said, okay, I was hiding this from you, but I'll tell you. This pregnancy has been unusual for me. I've been very lonely because everyone has abandoned me. Of course I have you, but remember when you have a certain social status and you lose it, you feel lonely sometimes. When I feel loneliness at home, my fetus talks to me. Lady Fatima would speak to Khadija while she was pregnant with her. Yeah, don't be surprised if Jesus spoke the second he was born and he gave comfort to Maryam. Why couldn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give that honor to Lady Fatima to comfort Khadija? So she would comfort Khadija according to this hadith attributed to Imam al-Sadiq until she gives birth. Now at the time of birth, she needed a midwife to assist her. You know, they didn't have hospitals back then. 
a midwife would come to assist with the delivery. None of those women from Quraysh agreed to come. And imagine that's a difficult moment for a woman who's going through labor, right? You need family members, friends, some, a midwife, somebody to be there for you. She was all alone in her room at the time of birth. Our hadiths indicate that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent four women to help Khadija Who were they? Asiya, the wife of the Pharaoh. Lady Maryam salam, that's number two. Number three, Sarah, the wife of Prophet Ibrahim. And the fourth one is Keltham, the sister of Musa Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends them. Of course, they're souls. I mean, they had passed away. But in human form, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them to assist with the delivery of Lady Khadija And so, Fatima al-Zahra on 20 Jamadi al-Thani, which is the sixth, the sixth month in the Islamic calendar today, on the 20th, she was born in the city of Mecca. Fatima السلام, brings so much joy to the life of the Prophet to Lady Khadija السلام. You know, she is no longer that lonely, she's so happy. Fatima السلام, you know, even when she was young, she takes on a motherly role to comfort the Prophet, to be there for him. You know, we have some historical accounts that tell us the Prophet would be in Masjid al-Haram. The pagans would come harass the Prophet as he was in sujood praying. You know, they'd bring the testines of the animals and they'd uh, contaminate his clothes with it. Sometimes they would harass him. Fatima would see and observe these scenes and she would cry often. You know, when the Prophet would go back home, she would wipe. Imagine a little daughter, we're talking about a three, four-year-old daughter. She would wipe his forehead from the blood and the dust and she would comfort the Messenger of Allah. So Fatima really grows up, uh, you know, in a very difficult childhood, seeing her father harassed, the Muslims persecuted. But the real persecution comes in the next stage, which we'll examine next week, inshallah, which is the stage of Sha'b Abi Talib where kids would starve to death. And Fatima being a young girl, a daughter, she witnessed all of these tragedies. So Fatima in Mecca really had a difficult childhood because she would witness all these acts of injustice against her father, against her mother, and against those early Muslims. So that's something that uh, we will examine next week, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa alihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Allahumma